It's Friday, November 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More movement in the ongoing probe by special counsel Robert Mueller. This time, President Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, came forward and pled guilty to lying to the Senate Intelligence Committee about building a Trump Tower in Moscow. Previously, Cohen said that any possible deal ended in January 2016, but that was a lie and things continued into the presidential campaign. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico, joins us for more on this and why Cohen said he lied. Loyalty to the president. Next, a new government climate report that came out on Black Friday has some bad news for the country. There could be thousands killed and hundreds of billions of dollars in annual losses if things don't change. President Trump said that he doesn't believe the report. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for what's in the report and how global warming is affecting us. Finally, who are the highest paid TV hosts for 2018? Some of the names on the list might not surprise you, but the top earner this year is the first time this person has topped this list, and it's all thanks to a very savvy business move. Judge Judy Scheinlin raked in $147 million last year. My producer Miranda joins us for how Judge Judy is making all her money. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He's lying about a project that everybody knew about. I mean, we were very open with it. We were thinking about building a building. I guess we had in a form, it was an option. I don't know what you'd call it. I decided ultimately not to do it. There would have been nothing wrong if I did do it. If I did do it, there would have been nothing wrong. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. So we had some more developments in the Mueller investigation. President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, People have called him his fixer. He pleaded guilty to lying to the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2017. He made a new plea deal with special counsel Robert Mueller's team, admitting to lying about an effort to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. What do we know about the new false statements that they're clearing up that he made? The plea was that in a prepared statement to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, Cohen misled them to suggest that his work on trying to get a Trump Tower Moscow built ended in early 2016, when in reality, he he was working on that deal well into 2016 while Donald Trump was running for president, something Trump has long denied, said I had no relationship with Russia. So it's really called into question a lot of those denials about the president's business relationship with Russia while he was running for office. He initially said that the Moscow project, all those talks ended in January, but it went all the way up until June. There was that. He also, uh, Cohen said he had never agreed to travel to Russia in connection with the project and never considered asking the president to travel for the project. But that was also a lie. There was conversations about that. And I think the other thing was Cohen said he didn't recall any Russian government responses in connection to this. And that was also a lie. He did get a like an email back and a 20-minute phone call with a yep. Russian official about the project. And what this does is it just calls into question everything that people in, in the Trump universe said about this stuff during the campaign in real time. And then since then, since the Russia investigation got underway, everything has to be revisited in light of these, these new facts. All the president and his allies say, well, Cohen's a liar, so you can't trust what he's saying anyway. There's some other interesting things that came up in this. Cohen said that he did speak to the president about this about three times. Mm -hmm. and Trump family members. 
So that seems right. to implicate maybe his sons. Maybe the most interesting part of all of this is what we don't know, because this is just scratching the surface, really, of what Cohen is admitting to publicly. But he's still cooperating with Mueller and must have had to uh, admit to some other facts or provide some other facts and documents and details that would be valuable to Mueller in order to secure this plea deal in the first place. So there's still a lot of shoes to drop here. Yeah, I think the report said that he spent more than 70 hours in interviews with the special counsel. There's a treasure trove of stuff going on there that could possibly still surface. Right. And again, Mueller does not cut plea deals with people who can't provide valuable information in other respects. So what that information is, we don't know. But Cohen was involved in everything Trump did up until he was excommunicated from Trump's orbit. Yeah. And this just complicates things for the president so much. As you were saying, President Trump had constantly been saying, I have no business dealings with Russia. All the while, this thing was kind of going on. And apparently the deal died the day that the Washington Post broke the story about Russian hacking into the Democratic National Committee. That's when they said, OK, no more. We're not going to do any possible deals because this is just going to complicate everything. Right. And it also coincided with Trump securing the nomination, the Republican nomination for president, too, which probably made pursuing business deals even more untenable. But you're right. It's this confluence of events. The, the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians happened on June 9th of 2016, which is right before this deal fell apart. So so who knows what forces were at work uh, behind the scenes there? So what has been the uh, outside reaction to this? The president was calling him weak and a liar. Same thing coming out of Rudy Giuliani. They definitely, that's their play here is to say, look, Cohen's unreliable. He wants to deal with prosecutors, so he'll say whatever he needs to say. But at the same time, Giuliani put out a statement saying, well, the president's version of events is largely similar to what Cohen is now saying. So it's a little bit confusing as to what message they're trying to send. And it's giving fodder for Democrats in Congress who say, hey, we got to investigate all this and bring these people back before Congress and really dig into it. Yeah, that came specifically from uh, Adam Schiff, incoming House Intelligence Chairman, and the other interesting thing that happened is Rudy Giuliani mentioned it. He said it's so weird that the special counsel and Michael Cohen did this just as the president was leaving for his meeting with world leaders at the G20 summit. The president canceled his meeting, his planned meeting with Vladimir Putin there. The ostensible reason for the cancellation is that there's an ongoing dispute between the Kremlin, between Russia and Ukraine over Russia's detention of some Ukrainian boats. But it also is convenient politically for the president not to be in the same camera shot with Vladimir Putin at, at this particular right. moment when his relationship's being called into question again. Does it seem like the Mueller probe could be ending soon? I, I know they lost Paul Manafort as mm -hmm. a cooperating witness. They still have Michael Cohen, but it just seems like everything's kind of starting to tick up again. You know, you never know here. It seems like certain chapters are reaching their climax here, uh, things related to Roger Stone and other some of the other president's other close allies. But you never know. This whole Cohen episode, we didn't even know it existed until, really until today. <laughs> right. So who knows what else we don't know is out there. We don't know what we don't know. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime, Oscar. Thank you. Yeah, I don't believe it. No, no, I don't believe it. You're going to have to have China and Japan and all of Asia and all of these other countries, you know, address, addresses our country. Right now, we're at the cleanest we've ever been. And that's very important to me. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios and extreme weather expert. Let's talk about this new climate report that came out from the Trump administration. It came out on Black Friday. A lot of people were saying they were trying to bury the lead on it. But it does warn of hundreds of billions of dollars in annual losses to uh, some economic sectors without any scaled up actions to help adapt to or prevent some of these changes that global warming is causing. 
we did get to hear from the president on his way to a campaign stop. They asked him about the report. He said he's seen it. He's read some of it. And it's all fine. But then they asked him about the economic dangers that the global warming causes. And he says, I just don't believe it. And he left and that was the end of it. Tell us a little bit about this report. And then after that, we'll get into some motivations of why the president would continue to deny reports coming out of his own administration, things that the government is working on. But let's start with some of the report. What did it say? So the report is known as the National Climate Assessment. It's mandated by Congress and it's done through an interagency process. So you can think of this as basically every agency in the U.S. government that touches climate science contributed to this report. So it's 13 agencies as a whole, everybody from NASA to the Department of Energy to National Science Foundation to others. So the report gives a really clear picture of how climate change is impacting the United States today and will continue to do so under different scenarios. It basically found that even just in the period since the last one came out under Obama several years ago, we now know that climate change is costing billions each year in the United States and is killing people each year in the United States, mostly in the form of extreme weather events, including primarily heat waves and floods, but also linked to different other extreme events that have been linked to climate change to some degree, such as Hurricane Harvey in Houston, in terms of the deluge that that brought. It reads like a novel in some ways, like it's this dystopian novel, except <laughs> it's, right. it's all about reality. Yeah. It basically lays out the case for why we have to adapt to what's going on now and what's guaranteed to happen in the pipeline in the next couple of decades, because we can't just turn the climate around on a dime. This is a very big delayed system, like an ocean liner. We have to take dramatic actions to reduce our emissions. Yeah. And this is something that most countries, most leaders agree to, but that one party in the United States does not and one leader in the United States does not. It says that climate change, global warming is already happening. It's going to get worse. It's going to cost us a ton of money, but there are still things that we can do to help as bad as it could get. In the report, it says that some of the worst case climate change scenarios could be that labor related losses of an estimated $155 billion per year. This is by the end of the century, so like in 2090. And then property damage, sea level rise, surge flooding, all that stuff could reach $120 billion a year. What are some of the things that it says that we can still do to help stem some of that? If you're a city, a government, for example, if you're sitting there in Los Angeles or you're sitting there in New York, you need to be taking steps to think about how can your city better withstand heat extreme? How can your city better implement a white roofs, different programs that they actually in Los Angeles, they already have this in place, but different programs to limit the urban heat island effect. So you paint some roofs white, you actually even paint some roads white, so they reflect more incoming solar radiation out rather than trap the heat during the day and in the evening. In coastal cities, People need to be thinking more about more resilient shorelines and possibly retreating 
from certain communities that are flooding repeatedly year after year, because in uh, the next couple of decades, those communities will no longer be viable under most sea level rise scenarios, depending on exactly where you're talking. So there's adaptation that we can do. This report should not get people feeling like, oh my God, we're totally screwed. There's nothing (laughs) that we can do. It's a blueprint for action. The people who wrote it did it so that local, regional, and national leaders could pick it up, cross things off a list, and say, we're doing all these things. We're in a much better shape than we were before we read this report and took action. That's some of the confusing stuff that comes from the administration. I mean, this is one of our own governmental reports. As you said, it serves more as a blueprint of things that we should be working on. And I have no clue. Maybe in the president's head, it it seems like this is so far off from now. It's kind of out of my hands. Obviously, we know that there are other agenda items on the president's list. So maybe he doesn't want to focus on these things. But as you said, these are the things that are already starting to happen now. We need to start working on these things. And it's about the long game with this stuff. Confusing is one word for it. I think the scientists that wrote the report, I don't think they expect anything different from him now. I think that to some it might be infuriating, though, knowing that they just spent three years of their professional lives putting this together to help the country better prepare itself for what's coming. You know, one of the interesting things is President Trump, in terms of his political agenda, has bet that by deregulating things on the environmental side, he will free up capital for economic growth. So whether or not you agree with that, that's kind of what he's been doing with the EPA and others. However, what this report is saying is that climate change is in the coming decades is going to take a bigger and bigger and bigger slice out of our economy to the point where by the end of the century, we could, under some scenarios, see about 10% of GDP just hacked off due to the costs of all these increases in extreme events and cumulative economic impacts of climate change. And that's not a chapter that had been in the previous national climate assessment. This is all emerging economic research. And if I were a Republican lawmaker, and if I were the president, that's actually the chapter that I'd be most unnerved by, because it's basically saying that global trade is potentially jeopardized by climate change. If you have an extreme event in one place that disrupts a factory that happens to make a particular part needed in a particular thing that we make, it's a cascade of events. Right. And some of these have happened, and it cites examples of them happening in the past couple of years. But the impacts on trade and economic growth are really fascinating and would really speak to people on the right-hand side of the political aisle rather than just the adaptation mitigation language that Democrats might argue right. The scientific picture has become clearer now with regards to global warming and climate change, and the economic outlook now is also becoming clearer what could happen with these effects. So now it's all about our reaction to it. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios and extreme weather expert. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I allow you a couple of seconds to answer my questions, not to vent. You want to vent, go to see a therapist. She's, you're angry. 
Anger doesn't make anger doesn't make a lawsuit. I'm more frustrated with you not allowing me the latitude to to elaborate on a couple issues. You'll just have to suffer with that, sir. Yeah, perhaps. No, I'm telling definitely. Joining me now is my producer Miranda. I always love these stories because. I always want to know how much people are making. This is the list of the world's highest paid TV hosts for 2018. Forbes put out this list. The list doesn't change very often. It takes a long time for people to build up their audiences and the deals that they make. Let's start with number five. We'll go back to number one and then we'll just talk about it all. Number five is Steve Harvey. How much does he make, Miranda? Steve Harvey makes $44 million a year. And this is spread between his daytime show, Steve, his radio show that's on every morning, and he's the host of Family Feud. And then he also hosts some other like variety style shows. I love Steve Harvey. I think he's hilarious. His daytime show, Steve, gets a replay in the middle of the night. And for some reason, I always wake up and it's always (laughs) on my TV. And it's pretty funny. So I do enjoy the show. Okay, number four, who's there? Ryan Seacrest, earning $74 million a year. Just as soon as his American Idol job wrapped up, he got the job in New York to be the co-host for Live with Kelly and Ryan. He's also the producer for Keeping Up with the Kardashians. He created that show. And he also has a radio show. Yeah, number three. Dr. Phil McGraw, earning $77,500,000 a year. This is all due to his show, Dr. Phil. He's one of the most watched syndicated shows on TV. And then he also moved behind the camera. He's the executive producer to shows called The Bull, The Doctors, and then Daily Mail TV as well. Yeah, and he co-founded this thing called Doctors on Demand. It's an app that connects people with psychologists and physicians. We've been hearing a lot about this stuff. It's basically talking to a doctor by video conference and for small little ailments and things like that, they can give you guidance on what to do. All right. Number two on this list. Ellen DeGeneres, no surprise to anyone, $87,500,000. She made history this year, Oscar, by becoming the first woman to ever receive a $20 million check from Netflix for a stand-up special. That's so crazy. Blend that together with the eight-figure check she gets from hosting her daytime show. And then she's a producer for shows called Little Big Shots, Splitting Up Together, and then licensing fees because she's got products in PetSmart and Bed Bath & Beyond everywhere. Ellen is one of the most popular people in the world. I remember at the height of the comedy movie genre time when actors were getting paid $20 million just for like a big budget blockbuster comedy film. Guys like Jim Carrey. So now Ellen DeGeneres is making $20 million just for a Netflix stand-up. That is crazy. And number one on the list here, who do we have? This is a big one. This is Judy Scheinlin, also known as Judge Judy, who made $147 million in the last year. And this is not just because of her show. She earns $45 million a year for her show. But this deal is because she sold her back catalog, an estimated 5,000 episodes, decades worth of old shows to CBS in a deal that she brokered for $100 million. She more than tripled her usual yearly earnings. Now, I've seen Judge Judy's show a bunch of times, as a lot of people Everyone have. Everyone has. One funny side story is I went out of town on vacation. We had a friend come over and watch our place, watch our dog. And he set Judge Judy to record on our DVR. So I come back later and there's just a ton of episodes. And I was like, what is this stuff? He's like, I, I can't. I love Judge Judy. I got to see it all the time. She's on this list more so because of that big $100 million right. deal that she did, but she's still up there. She still makes a ton of money. She consistently gets more than 10 million daily viewers, it being in its 23rd season. Dr. Phil, he gets about 4 million viewers. These are big numbers. 
And it's that important demographic that they're always trying to reach, those 18 to 49-year-old women that all these marketers want to get their products to. So that's why all these people that are on this list are all daytime hosts. I just want to remind everybody, two out of these five people have radio shows, so keep an eye on Oscar and me. (laughs) Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.